You don't know flag. You Don't Know Flat, a podcast full of stories about retro gaming, retro computing, video games, arcade games, and technology from a guy who was there and still is. My name is Rob O'Hara, but for the next 30 minutes, you can call me Flat. Episode 132, Yukon Software. Hello and welcome to episode 132 of You Don't Know Flat. My name is Rob Flack O'Hara. And this week, I'll be talking about Yukon Software, the computer store my parents uh, used to own and run back in the mid-1980s. The subtitle for this episode should be, The Episode That Almost Wasn't, because <laughs> i got to tell you, <laughs> I think um, for some reason this episode uh, has been cursed. Um, I'll tell you what, let's, um, let me go ahead and, and get... Uh, this episode started loading on the Commodore 64. Uh, I'm actually uh, in a hotel room right now, and uh, fortunately I brought my SX-64 with me, my portable Commodore 64, and a giant stack of floppy disks. I did the math, I think last week's episode would span about 350 floppy disks, so let me start feeding these into the SX-64 right now to load the podcast in, and while I'm doing that, we will have a little bit of time to chat during loading time. Loading time. Loading time. Loading time. So let me tell you what I've gone through to get this episode recorded. First of all, uh, if you'll remember on episode 131, I talked about purchasing the H2 Zoom microphone. I was very excited about it. The H2 Zoom microphone is about the size of a deck of cards, and it has really good audio quality. So I was really excited to take the microphone on the road with me as I am, I have left Oklahoma and I am on a two-week trip, a two-week road trip for work. So last Sunday, I drove to Memphis, Tennessee. So while I was in Memphis, I thought, hey, I'll record the podcast. It's Sunday night. So I got out my trusty H2 Zoom microphone and I turned it on. And the walls in that hotel were so thin Everything I said, I was so self-conscious that the people next to me were listening to every word. So the whole podcast sounded like this. Everything I said was whispering like this. And it sounded very weird. And I was going to go with that version just to have something to put out. And then about 20 minutes into the episode, the air conditioner turned on. And it was so unbelievably loud. I was going to have to do a bunch of recording over it just wasn't worth it so actually it was it was further it was about 45 minutes into the episode so I, I turned off the mic I said forget it and I'll record it on Monday when I get to the Marriott in Charlotte North Carolina and so Monday I did get to the Charlotte Marriott and I set up my little zoom microphone and uh, the room was much nicer and and uh so I did my recording, and I recorded for a little over an hour. But it was pretty late when I finished, and I didn't feel like editing it, so I decided to edit the podcast on Tuesday. And so Tuesday, I pulled the SD card out of the Zoom H2 and put it in my netbook. 
and I have discovered that my netbook has decided it's going to blue screen every five minutes now. Now, I just reloaded the netbook less than a month ago when I bought it. Now, this is actually the netbook. I don't have the episode number in front of me, but that I talked about on a previous episode of You Don't Know Flack. The netbook has literally been sitting on a shelf for at least a year, maybe two years. And I decided, what a great idea to put my audio editing software on the netbook. And then when I'm on the road, I could edit the podcast. And so I um, reformatted the netbook. It came with XP. I put Windows 7 on it. Um, the only things, there's like four things installed on it. VLCs installed on it. My uh, audio, I use um, Vegas to edit the podcast. It's a little overkill, but it's um, something I have a lot of experience with. And I think I have um, 7-Zip on there, and that's about it. <laughs> there's hardly anything loaded on the laptop. But the laptop is now blue screening every five minutes. And so, uh, unfortunately, the blue screen goes away so fast that I wasn't able to get the error number off. But eventually I did see that it was a uh, IRQ error, and I tracked it down on google and it appears it has something to do with the video driver so i um, did some more searching and someone has released a new video driver for the acer aspire netbook so i installed that netbook now seems to be stable so with the netbook fixed by the way here's the least helpful advice you can give to anybody when they're trying to fix a windows problem go load linux or should have bought a mac that is not helpful when you are sitting in a hotel room in Charlotte, North Carolina, trying to fix your podcast. So anyway, with the netbook fixed, I put the SD card in and I began editing. And about oh, 15 or 20 minutes into the episode, I heard a little audio glitch. Just a tiny little thing that made my voice sound like a robot. And it was like in the middle of a sentence. I was saying something about, well, then I had gone to the store. <laughs> it was very odd. Uh, and I thought, you know what? I've already recorded the podcast twice. Uh, I, I can live with it. And then the longer it went on, the more and more I started noticing it. And, uh, you know, at the end of it, I just didn't even want to put that out. So so I deleted all that. Um, and I searched Google again for audio problems. And um, there are some presets on the Zoom H2 for uh, voice compression and and things like that, and it says um, you may want to turn that off, and it it's also said you may want to replace the stock SD card with a faster card. So I went to Staples on Wednesday and bought a uh, SDHC. You know, people complain about the uh, cost of computers and hardware and things like that. The last SDHC 8-gig card I bought, I want to say I paid... $75 for a couple of years ago when I bought my new camera. This one was 10 <laughs> It was literally the cheapest card they had, an 8-gig SDHC card at Staples. So, so anyway, I bought the new card. I turned off all the compression. I'm not recording to MP3. I'm recording straight to Wave. If this one's screwed up, that's it. <laughs> then the Zoom H2 goes in the trash, and... Um, I will go back to hauling around the Blue Yeti, which has never, ever, ever given me any problems. So this is uh, the last try for the Zoom H2. <sighs> so what else went on this week? Um, well, I I guess 
it would be uh, callous of me to not talk about the Boston Marathon bombing. You know, it's it's been a few days now. It's been over a week, I guess. So it's kind of it's funny how those things fade quickly. Um, you know, the Oklahoma City bombing was on April nineteenth, nineteen ninety five, and every year on that anniversary. I think public conscience, you know, goes away from that. But if you were in Oklahoma, it had a bigger effect. Um, almost everybody knows somebody who knows somebody who was uh, in the bombing. Almost everybody knows someone who was affected by the bombing. Uh, my cousin died in the Murr Building bombing. She worked in the daycare. And... Uh, so every year around April 19th, uh, I mean, it's not really a thing that I sit around and get depressed about, but um, I do sit around and, and um, I mean, I take a moment to think about the things that I do have, you know, and and um, the one thing that's always affected me about that is that Timothy McVeigh bombed a federal building to prove a point, um, but the people that were in that building weren't really people he was angry with. I mean, I guess some of them were, but um, I don't think the kids in the daycare were. Um, I don't think a lot of the other people, the innocent bystanders were. I don't think, I mean, he might have been mad at an agency or a group of people, but not the people that were specifically there. And that's always bothered me a little bit because I work in a federal building. And, uh, you know, of course our security has changed uh, infinitely since that day, uh, before that day, you could actually, people off the, the public could drive up to the building I worked in, walk in, come have lunch with you or whatever, and um, about a week after the bombing is when they erected a giant gate all the way around our entire campus and uh, put up guard gates and, and badges and parking decals and all those kind of things. So it really, it changed a lot. But uh, anyway, I didn't really think about that this year because of the uh, these two morons that decided to bomb the Boston Marathon. And uh, I guess news is still unfolding about that. They, they said today on CNN that, uh, that apparently they had uh, this guy they carjacked. They were asking questions about how to get to Manhattan, how to get to New York City that they had more bombs with them and uh, that they were planning on setting off more bombs in Times Square. And uh, I don't know, you know, um, I really wasn't looking forward to this road trip in a way, being away from uh, my family and my stuff is hard for two weeks, but I was glad to get away from this uh, onslaught of news, just this... Um, crushing flood of updates and you know uh, Twitter and Facebook and the TV channels and the news and it's constantly um, you know this flood of information about the bombing and uh, so it's good to kind of get away and just turn it off for a little bit you know so so anyway enough about all that um Let's not talk about depressing stuff. Let's talk about happy stuff. Let's talk about retro fun stuff. And I did get some 
emails uh, last week, and I will just go over a couple of them really quick. I'm going to save some for the next episode because I got a lot. The um, episode 131 about the the boxing was uh, very popular. <clears throat> I got an email here from my uh, old buddy Josh Risner up in Tulsa, who said that um, he really enjoyed that, that he first found out about these boxes uh, from reading my book, Commodore. And he says that uh, uh, he used to make free phone calls from payphones by using the old paperclip trick, which um, a bastardized version of that was shown in War Games when Matthew Broderick shorted out a payphone with a uh, pop tab. But there was a similar trick that could be done with uh, paperclips. But, uh, so thanks for letting us know about that, Josh. I will send the authorities your way. They probably had security cameras back 30 years ago at the mall, and they will be coming to visit you shortly. <laughs> I also got a voice message from my buddy Maury, uh, who had a few little things to tell me. He also has experience with the Zoom H2, and he told me of a few of the things he didn't like about it, and uh, I'm kind of run into some of those things myself. So we'll see if the H2 works in the long run. He also noted that uh, he's heard me mention 405 a few times in my podcast, and to him, being in California, 405 represents the interstate, I for, you know, interstate 405, which is uh, funny because when I was in Seattle, I saw the same thing, uh, signs for 405, and in fact, in the uh, opening of the first couple of pages of Commodore, there's a picture of the 405 sign, and I took that picture when I was in Seattle. So, yeah, that that kind of comes from a... Uh, a day where area codes were more important. People kind of represented, you know, an area code. You that was your your badge, your your uh, your claim to fame or whatever was your area code. So I don't think that's as uh, prevalent anymore, but uh, back in the day it was. So and that that's a number I've, I've hung on to for a long time. In fact, uh, for those of you that have picked up. Jason Scott's documentary for Get Lamp, you know it comes with a numbered coin, and uh, I had coin number 331, but I actually tracked down the person who got coin 405 and traded coins with that person, so I have coin 405 for Get Lamp too, so, uh, and that, I was very, very thankful that person uh, was willing to do that for me. I also got an email from Jim Leonard. Jim Leonard, some of you may know as Trickster from Moby Games, and Jim says he uh, has just recently discovered the podcast, and he's been going through the episodes listening to those, so thank you for doing that, Jim, and I appreciate the email. Jim also said he hasn't found a good podcast about uh, old PCs, uh, specifically early 80s, like 81 to 83 PCs, and I think he's right. You know, I've talked about uh, Boring Beige Box, which was a great podcast. Matt, I wish you would uh, pick that back up. I know it... it um, gets busy when uh, you start having kids and Matt has a couple of young young kids right now but uh, uh, that was a really good podcast Boring Beige Box I think there's 22 episodes and even though he's stopped recording if uh, you haven't listened to those you should go pick it up Boring Beige Box was one of the original inspirations for this show and um, there's Lazy Game Reviews which is another um, pretty PC centric podcast and I, I enjoy his reviews but yeah I think um, there is definitely an opportunity for that era 
of PCs. And, and I'll tell you what, I, I took a uh, entrepreneur class years ago, and uh, the instructor said one of the biggest faults people have when starting businesses is that they're too broad. You know, a lot of people think, well, they want to get more business in, so they will be a uh, computer repair and computer virus and computer building and will do websites uh, and wash your car windows and all these things, you know, where if you focus on one thing, like all we do is computer repair, then you could kind of brand yourself. And then when people need computer repair, they think of you, they go to you. So uh, you can actually get more business by specializing in something. And I think the same is true with podcasts. As I, uh, um, I'm always searching on iTunes and other places for podcasts, and there's so many podcasts out there. If you search for retro or game that are just this giant broad umbrella of, well, we talk about retro games, and, you know, they're, um, they, they'll talk about any game for any system from any era, and it's so big that I think it's hard to get that specific audience, whereas um, if you, you know, look at the angry video game nerd who has, you know, a, a specific shtick or, um, you know, somebody who just does NES reviews or somebody who just talks about uh, PCs or, you know, things like that. So it may seem limiting, but in reality, you're going to get a bigger audience. You know, you're going to get the people that come after uh, in that topic. So I think um, uh, for Jim and for anybody thinking about doing a podcast, look at um, the 2600 Game by Game podcast. I mean, it is a specific, uh, you know, Atari 2600 games. It's very specific and... You know, once the Atari community began discovering that, uh, you know, it's starting to take off. So, um, but I definitely think there are opportunities for podcasters, especially anybody wanting to talk about um, retro and old school things. Hey, and speaking of old school, the sound of the 1541 drive banging there can only mean one thing. And that is that the podcast has finished loading. It took a little bit longer for this week's podcast to load. But anyway, it's all loaded. So let me go ahead and type run and we will get started with this week's episode, Yukon Software. If you've listened to old episodes of You Don't Know Flack or read my website, or follow me on Twitter, or read my book, or any of those things. Really, if you know anything about me, you know that I started with computers at an early age. My dad had a, he bought a TRS-80 Model 3 for us. I talked about this in episode one in 1980, right before I turned seven years old. So at the age of six, I began learning how to program in basic, and just, uh, in general, work with home computers. In 1982, he sold that computer and bought a Franklin Ace 1000, which was an Apple II compatible. And we had that for a few years. He eventually bought, we kept that, and he bought a IBM PC Junior, and then an IBM XT. And then in 1985, I got a Commodore 64, and we we eventually got a Commodore SX64, the portable Commodore 64, from a, a neighbor of ours. So, so by 1985, I mean, there were a lot of people that, lots of people that didn't have home computers in 1985. 
lots of people that had never used a personal computer in 1985, and we had several. My dad had a desk in the kitchen area that originally had the... Uh, I grew up in a, uh, a house, you know, a three-bedroom house with a living room, a kitchen, a dining room, and that was it. There was no den. There was no uh, spare bedroom. There was no anything like that. So my dad had put a computer desk in the kitchen and that's where the TRS-80 was and then that's where the Apple was but by the time the uh, you know 1984 1985 and he had started building up uh, you know owning multiple computers he ended up building uh, my dad was always building things out of wood and he had built this computer desk that I want to say was probably eight foot wide maybe three foot deep and um, so it had three it had enough space on it for three computers so uh, at one time it had the the Franklin Ace on it uh, the PC Junior and maybe the XT um, and then the Commodore 64 went in my room on a different desk so at that time in Yukon Oklahoma if you wanted to get something computer-related, you went to Radio Shack. Radio Shack was the only place that sold floppy disks, and they were expensive at Radio Shack. And if you wanted something PC-related or actually Tandy-related, you could go to Radio Shack. But as far as a lot of PC things, um, nothing Apple, nothing Commodore, nothing like that. So it was pretty limited in what you could get in Yukon. Now, there was a... A store called Secondhand Software that specialized. They had uh, Apple and I think Commodore and, and PC stuff, uh, and they were probably 20 minutes away from our house. And then there was another place named Cosols that was another maybe another 10 minutes, so it might have been half an hour away from our house. And then there were the computer stores like Wizards uh, that were in the mall where you could go get things. But there weren't any stores catering to computer owners in Yukon and so my parents I'm assuming here you know I had hoped actually to interview them for this episode and I just didn't get around to it before I left on this trip so I may take that as an IOU I may follow up later uh, and do a, a sequel to this episode or something with some interviews but um, I assume that they thought that there would be a market for a computer store in Yukon, Oklahoma. And so they went and found an area in a strip mall. Um, I don't know the name of the strip mall. It's probably changed since then. If you are familiar with Yukon, Oklahoma, um, it's where the old Big Ed's restaurant where uh, Miller Grill is now. But it was in there and there was a uh, pawn shop. I think the pawn shop's still there. And there was a video rental store and then there was an empty store next to it and so that's that empty spot next to the video rental store became Yukon Software and so my dad um, painted this big sign with a Y and a S uh, intertwined on a 4 by 8 sheet of plywood and uh, I have a few pictures of Yukon Software I think they were all taken it's all from one roll of film and I think it's like, you know, the, the week before the store opened and the, and the first couple of days. Um, so this was probably May of 1985. Uh, so I had just started, 
well, it, it was the, for me, it was the summer break. I had just started the summer vacation between sixth and seventh grade. So, um, now my dad at that time was working this crazy shift. Um, when I was a little kid, younger, much younger, he used to work 3 p.m. to 11.30, I think. Uh, basically, it was 3, I mean, 3 and then he, 3 p.m. and then he got home right around midnight. So, uh, Monday through Friday. So during the week, I didn't see him except for he would come to school and he would check me out for lunch on Wednesdays. And so every Wednesday, uh, that was a, you know, big, big treat back then to get, uh, to leave campus, you know, second, third grader go have lunch with somebody, you know, so every Wednesday I got to go out and have lunch with my dad, and, um, so anyway, at some point, I don't know, fifth or sixth grade, something like that, he changed to this other shift, the printing plant he worked at moved to 24-hour, uh, printing, and so, uh, Every, the shifts were noon to midnight and midnight to noon, and he either worked Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And so my dad ended up on working midnight to noon on Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays. So you can imagine what the rest of his week was like. I mean, he had, uh, and he worked every other Sunday, too. So when he worked on Sunday, I mean, he would spend Monday trying to readjust to a normal sleep schedule, and then have Tuesday and then Wednesday have to try to go to bed at, you know, 4 or 5 p.m. in the afternoon to get some sleep before he had to go to work, uh, you know, Thursday or, you know, Wednesday night at midnight. So, basically, uh, when he, because he was working that shift, that left my mom to kind of uh, run the store. So, um, so she ran the store during the day while he was at work or at night, you know, when he was sleeping or whatever. And, um, my sister and I would hang out. Now the store was, if you kind of think about it, like, um, two squares, like the front half and the back half, I guess that's the easiest way to explain it. So the front half would be the store and then the back half would be like the private employee only area. So the front half of the store, if you could divide that up into fourths, um, there was a, a sectioned off fourth in the back right-hand corner, and then the rest of it was all open, like a big L shape. So down the left-hand side were three sets of uh, wooden shelves See that my dad made. <laughs> I told you my dad was always making things out of wood. And so he had set up these three different um, wooden shelves, and one was for PC software and hardware, and one was for... Um, Apple and one was for Commodore. So he had those shelves and then in the front part of the L there was a uh, cash register and a little display case and I think there was some other stuff like that. There's a bulletin board where people could put uh, computer stuff on it. You know? And then the part, the, the fourth, the little section that was cubed off in the right hand side was like a little room uh, with a door and a and a big window cut out. Now, there was no glass in the window. It was open, but a big cutout opening and then an opening for a door. And, uh, and so the, that giant computer desk that he built for our house ended up getting moved in that room. And so uh, on that desk, he had set up 
uh, I want to say the PC Junior and uh, the Franklin and the SX-64. And then the XT stayed home at our house. And then, of course, the Commodore 64 um, stayed in my room. But uh, so he had all those computers there hooked up and that we would run uh, games on them. So my sister and I were allowed to play games all the time because it was like showing off a product, you know, to customers. Or um, a lot of times, like on the Apple, I would load up uh, little computer people and just let that run. Uh, or, uh, you know, different things on the on the Commodore or on the PC or whatever. Uh, I remember actually doing my homework on that PC sometimes in the store. So, anyway, that was the front half of the store. And then the back half, there was... Uh, a little kitchenette, and then there was a little area with like a, a love seat and a TV. I mean, this is pretty, really small quarters in the back. Um, but we would uh, go next door to that video rental place and rent movies and bring it over. My sister and I would watch movies in the back of the store sometimes. Uh, and then there was a little storage area in the back. Um, I know one thing I remember is that we kept our bicycles back there because. This parking lot, um, it was like a big open parking lot. There was a lot of area where there was no cars, so sometimes we would go ride our bikes and stuff around the parking lot. Again, um, this was the summer uh, between 6th and 7th grade for me, and my sister's three years younger than me. So Um, so then school started and uh, for 7th grade, and we... I don't know if, if there was some special deal or, or whatever, but I used to ride the bus after school. And the bus driver, it was a different bus than I normally rode. The different, the bus would um, take all these other kids off, and then uh, there would be um, uh, two of us left, me and um, a kid named Jimmy Patel. And Jimmy Patel's parents owned a motel that was just down the street, so... Jimmy and I would stay on the bus, and, they, and then the bus driver would drop Jimmy off at the motel and then drive a block over and drop me off uh, by the uh, strip mall. And so that's uh, what I would do after school. I would take the bus and, and go over there, and then I would either ride my bike or, or go hang out in the store. And uh, to be in seventh grade when, you know, personal owning a, a PC in 1985... 1986 was, um, I won't say prestigious, but, uh, you know, not everybody had one. So getting to hang out at a computer store, you know, I thought was, was super cool, you know, and, and, um, you know, like I talked a lot about in Commodore and I've talked about on some of the other episodes, a lot of the software I got during that time was downloaded. So I never got to see the box art or the, you know, the pictures on the back of the box and things like that. So, uh, you know, just being able to look at the software on the shelves and things like that, just, you know, to touch all those different boxes. I always really enjoyed doing that. Uh, so anyway, um, what happened to Yukon Software? Well, first of all, my parents, I know they've told me in the past they took out a $30,000 loan, and that was to run the store for one year, so that included, um, you know, paying rent for one year and operating expenses. So at the beginning of that time, when they opened the store, there was nowhere in Yukon uh, to buy 
things like, you know, discs or games and things like that. By the time that year had passed, and we were coming up on the spring of 1986, you could buy that stuff, and you could buy it at Walmart. So, you know, I, I, I'm not going to turn this into a Walmart bashing podcast. And in fact, one of my uh, good friends works for Walmart, but, uh, but it's a fact that Walmart puts small businesses out of business. There were several grocery stores that were put out of business in Yukon when Walmart opened up. Um, there were uh, clothing stores in that area that got put out of business. There was an Anthony's that got put out of business when Walmart opened up. And eventually, Yukon Software <laughs> got put out of business. Um, I remember one night in particular looking at a dealer's uh, software catalog. And my mom was going through it looking for new games to buy. And, and um, uh, they would actually use me almost as a consultant. You know, hey, what games are hot? What games are people wanting to buy? That sort of thing like that. And I would go through these catalogs and, and help them pick out things uh, for the store. And I remember we were looking at this game. I want to say it was alternate reality. That's what's always struck in my head that that's what it was. But... Uh, and I could be fudging a little bit here on the numbers, but essentially the uh, suggested retail price was $30 for this game. The price that my parents could order this game for was $27. So they could buy it, have it shipped, do all this stuff, and then make $3 profit. The price at Walmart was something like $25. So it literally would have been cheaper instead of you know going through dealers wholesale at the the uh, you know rate my parents could order, it would have been cheaper to just go to Walmart and try to buy things, and then you know sell them uh, sell them at their store. I remember one of the things my dad had started doing was um, you know boxes of, of floppy disks. The going rate was. Uh, about $10 for 10 discs, you know, for a box of uh, a brand name floppy disk, Memorex, Bonus, uh, Elephant, something like that. But um, over at Kosal's, they would uh, buy discs in bulk. You could buy discs like in the hundreds or thousands. In fact, you could order them separate from the uh, sleeves, the paper sleeves, and you could get, get them, you know, fairly inexpensively. So he would sell, at Kosal's, he would sell uh, 10 discs in like a sandwich baggie. <laughs> so it wasn't even in a box. These were just generic discs. And uh, he would sell those for like $7. And so my dad would go over there and buy, buy discs and then go back to the store and copy public domain software onto the discs and sell them for a dollar each. So if he sold all 10 of those, you know, it would be $10. So... I thought at the time, boy, what a what a great idea that he's doing this, you know. I mean, he's buying these for seven dollars and selling them, you know, for ten. And now I think, um, how uh, desperate desperate may not be the right word, but um, you know, to make money, he was driving all the way out to Kosals to buy these discs, driving back. And putting all the time into copying the software and, and making these labels and stuff and basically making 
you know, 30 cents per disc. So, um, knowing that now, looking back, I think that there was probably, they probably weren't selling as many things as it felt like they were when I was a kid, you know? Um, in fact, my dad, um, the last month that the store was open, he got a, um, maybe it was the next to last month, he got a Laser 128, which was a Apple IIc compatible computer. And uh, he sold it the last month we were open, and he told me one time that that was the only month that he made a profit at Yukon Software. So basically they lost money for 11 months. Um, or, you know, ba- barely broke even, more or less. Um, and yeah, once once Walmart began selling some of the same things, um, then it, it was over. There, there was just no way, no way to compete on a financial basis. So, um, in May, maybe June of uh, 1986, Yukon Software closed its doors. Uh, there was um, some sales, some big sales near the end of Yukon Software, and then I remember going with. Uh, I don't remember if my dad went. I know I do remember my mom being there. I don't remember if my dad went or not, but I. Um, we had gone to like some computer, like a computer show, you know, where people get a booth and maybe it was at the fairgrounds or something like that. And we had gone and uh, we were selling brand new games for $10, just trying to get rid of, of inventory, you know. And um, I, I asked my mom if I could have whatever was left over and she said yeah. So um, I still have four games in my boxed PC collection that came from that day. Um, one is a Microsoft football game that has a $10 price tag on it. I still have that. I still have, um, there was a game called Trivia Fever, which was a horrible <laughs> game. Um, now it, it came with a disc and it came with a giant hardback, or a, not hardback, but a big giant thick book of trivia questions and answers. And so the, the part that was on the computer just kept track of where your pieces were and stuff, and then it would randomly generate a number, and you would use the book to ask other players the question, and if they answered it right, you would tell the computer that they did it right, or if it was wrong, then you would tell it. And so, um, you know, it was the early days, right, of computers. But I still have a copy of, uh, uh, I think it was called Trivia Fever. And... Um, what else do I have? Hmm. Oh, I have a copy of, I think it's called Lords of Conquest, which was Electronic Arts, um, basically a ripoff of Risk. Um, and that was when they were doing the cool um, album type cover, you know, for their software. So I probably have another thing or two. I remember we, for a long time, we had a bunch of optical mice for the apples that were out of my dad's shed and they just sat out there forever and then when I started kind of getting back into retro computers I mean a lot of I never really got out of it (laughs) but um uh you know a lot of people say hey when did you get into you know retro gaming I'm like I I never got into retro gaming I just never got rid of anything (laughs) so I had a lot of this crap when I was a kid but um uh, anyway, I, I 
had recalled that we'd had those mice and some other things out there. And so uh, I went out to that shed one time and mice had got into the shed. I guess the mice had eaten the mice. <laughs> um, mice had actually got into the shed and chewed all the boxes up and chewed everything up. So they all, they all went in the garbage. But So anyway, that that's pretty much the story of Yukon Software. For a year, my parents ran the only software store computer software store in Yukon, Oklahoma, and I got to hang out there. There were a few times where, um, I remember this one time, late at night, my mom had left uh, the store. I think she'd gone to go, like, do a bank deposit or something like that. And so, I mean, she couldn't have been gone more than 10 or 15 minutes, but she left me in charge, you know, and it was like 8 o'clock at night or something. Nobody ever came in that late. And so she left, and uh, it was just me in that store, and I was like, Man, how cool is this? <laughs> I mean, I'm like 12 years old, right? And I'm like, I, I am living the dream. I am running my own software store. And I, I would walk around and um, uh, <laughs> my parents had this little um, feather duster thing. And I remember walking around and just doing a little dusting, you know, and hoping somebody would come in and I could, you know, tell them. No, no customers came in, of course, but I kind of wish they had because that, that would have been pretty cool. But, uh, yeah, I just, uh, like I said, it's, I don't have any specific stories. I do remember one, one time I do actually remember, um, and I, I don't remember the whole thing, but, um, my parents basically caught somebody shoplifting one time and it was a guy who had, had come in. I mean, it was a kid and he had come in and picked up some games and then walked to the back part of the store and had ripped open the the plastic, you know, off one of the games and slipped the discs out. And I think he did it one time and, um, and got away with it. And then when he came in a second time, my parents were watching him and, like, cornered him. And I don't really remember what happened. Um, but I, I remember, because I, I was in the back, and I remember it was very, it was a big awkward thing. Maybe his parents were called or something. That's a, a good follow-up question during the interview, but I, I do remember that, and I remember that my parents um, both took it very personal that someone would shoplift from them, and, uh, um, you know, I think now, like, I think, I mean, looking, like, as an adult now, I think, well, if somebody shoplifts, it's not personal, you know, it's just, uh, you know, they just thought they could get away with it or whatever, but... Uh, but yeah, they definitely, uh, I remember they, they were really upset about that. But um, that, that was pretty much um, UConn Software. It was, uh, like I said, it was there for a year, and it was, um, it seemed like it was the future. It seemed like something that was really cool and something that would always be there, and I think it was just bad timing. I think if, um, you know, it had been a few years later, when people were starting to assemble their own computers and do stuff like that, there would have been a market for that. I think, um, you know, if they had moved into something else that uh, Walmart wasn't selling, you know, maybe if they'd moved more into hardware or something, you know, selling systems, things like that. But, um, yeah, as far as um, you can't fight the Walmart. <laughs> Sam Walton, he'll get you every time, so. Anyway, that that's um, 
I just wanted to talk a little bit about UConn software. I wanted to remember those times, and I wanted to uh, uh, just kind of capture some of those. I don't know that I've captured the feeling of, of how neat it was uh, to just be a kid and be in a, a computer store, you know, but it, it was pretty cool. I certainly enjoyed it, and I've I've thought about I would love to um, start my own business someday, run my own business. I know um, Susan, my wife, would like to, too. We just haven't found that... Um, golden you know idea yet that spark to really get us started but um yeah maybe someday we'll we'll have our own yukon software type story so you never know well that's about it for episode uh, 132 this cursed episode we'll uh i'll be finding out shortly whether this episode recorded fine or if it's uh, all garbled and either way you're gonna get it <laughs> i don't care what it sounds like this one's going out the door um i have been talking to my friend Mike uh, here in Charlotte, or not, God, I don't even know what town I'm in. I'm in uh, Greensboro, Greensboro, North Carolina. And uh, so I'm supposed to get with him this weekend. We're going to get together and play some uh, Commodore 64 games. I brought my, I did actually bring my Zoom floppy in a 1541, so we're going to make some Commodore discs for him. We're going to play some skateboarding games, and we're going to talk all about uh, old school skateboarding games. So you can look forward to that on episode 133. If you have uh, any additional feedback, if you have any feedback at all, you can email it to me at robohara at robohara.com. If, uh, I'll have to put the phone number in the show notes. I'm nowhere near a computer right now. And uh, I don't know the phone number. <laughs> so anyway, send me your feedback. Um, Thanks for listening. I appreciate it. And um, I will see you guys on episode 133 of You Don't Know Flat.